this morning, the Old Testament prophecy of Joel and the second chapter, Joel chapter 2. And in just a moment, I'm going to read simply two verses at the end of that chapter, verses 28 and 29. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. The word of the Lord speaking through His servant, the prophet Joel, says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out My Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word and now the explanation of it. The people of God had sinned. That should not come as news. All have sinned, after all. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin, I must remind you, is serious. It separates humanity from right relationship with God. It brings death. The specific sins of Joel's day are not clear from the prophetic book that carries his name. There is, earlier on in this prophecy, a reference to drunkenness and drunkards. But that, while sinful, is a symptom of deeper problems. And of course, fosters other problems. Swirling around the problem of Drunkenness are any number of issues that produce it and spring from it in a vicious cycle. Anger and lust, bitterness and resentment, dissatisfaction and pride, the idolatry of self, the hatred of self. The forever discontented grasping of habitually dissatisfied people in an increasingly decadent and consumerist society. And of course, there is the wide variety of self-destructive and socially destabilizing behaviors that drunkenness fuels. Things that we might recognize and categorize as immorality and injustice. So yes, there was much more going on, but we could build quite a bit just around that. What is clear is that they were wayward. The people of God have strayed from the Lord. Not perhaps as extreme as some of their forebears. After all, the the temple is functioning in Joel's day. Sacrifices are being offered, and the sacrifices are being offered to Yahweh, the Lord God, who brought them out of the house of slavery, delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, and uh, told them, you shall have no other gods before me. At this period of time, they are worshiping Him. But whatever their external displays, to satisfy the demands of God's justice, 
whatever the festivals and the feasts and the celebrations and the sacrifices and the codes and the cleansings that they practiced, they are at heart unrepentant as a people. The unrepentant sin of these people, people who profess to know the Lord. So this is not people, if we use this room as an example, this is not people out there. This is people in here. The the unrepentant sin of these people who profess to know the Lord has brought painful and devastating consequences upon the land. Yes, even the sins of, some might say, a minority. Oh, it's a bad batch. You know, there's a, there's a, a, few, a few bad eggs. A few rotten apples in the mix. And yet, throughout Scripture, one person, two people, who are walking in unrepentant sin bring cataclysmic judgment upon the whole assembly. It's a sobering and in some ways terrifying thought if you are the sinner. Swarming waves of locusts, in this case, had devoured their crops. They had come to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, with its grain offerings and Israelite harvest celebrations. And their grain offerings and their Thanksgiving celebrations come and go, and there is no grain to offer God. The whole feast is about grain. The whole celebration is about offering grain to God. But there is no grain because the locusts have eaten it all. The Jewish season of thanksgiving had nothing for which and with which to give thanks. The days of Joel are days of national crisis. And the outlook even into the future is bleak. A day of judgment of universal reckoning is coming. And where will the people stand at the end of it? More accurately, will they be left standing or will they fall? Will they enter into an eternity of wrathful justice or righteous joy in the presence of God? That is the question of Joel the prophet. The message Joel brings is that the people can confess, that the people can be comforted, and that they can know confidence as they face God's judgment and as they live in days of crisis and calamity. But Joel does not simply point people to present or near future help and hope, but to more distant future global revival. Not just near future local restoration, but future global revival. That's what the verses we just read communicate. We we see to start with that God pours out His Spirit on all flesh. The point I want you to draw from that is that God pours out His Spirit so we all have access to God. This is not just now about Israel. This is not just about the southern kingdom of Judah and their sins against God. This is not about the um, ethnic people that we call the Jews. This is about all of us, whether we are of Jewish heritage or Gentile. Whatever our past, whatever our background, whatever the religious rituals that we have practiced in our life, The Lord God says through His prophet that a day is coming when 
Yes, He will judge the world, but before we get there, He says, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Because God does not just desire to save some people of a certain type. God desires to save all kinds of people from all around the world as they repent of their sins and trust in Him. That is our hope. That is why we are gathered in the room this morning. When we see this this first line of just that one verse of prophecy, it is filled with great hope that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. For God to pour out His Spirit on all flesh is for, for Him to bring us into His presence by bringing His presence to us. We, see, we learn something of the priesthood of the believer in this, that we, by believing in Him, have access, each of us, to Him. That now there is not a specific class of people who have access to God or who have experience of God, but that any one of us may experience God. We, we see um, in the New Testament... The Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the Holy Spirit is the one who, when He is applied to our life by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, brings us into the presence of God, the very presence of God, so that you do not have to to, to go to some special class of Christian to get to God. But you can talk to Him where you're at. You can talk to Him now, in your heart, in your mind. You can talk to Him when you're walking on the street when you're sat at your desk working, when you're washing the dishes, when you're commuting, when, when, when you're laying in bed. I remember the revelation that it was to um, an Iranian sister that she um, um, had access to God even if she did not remove her makeup. And she thought that she had to Um, remove all of her makeup and all of her fingernail polish and all of these these various things and then lay a mat and wash and then kneel a certain direction. Friends, there's none of that that brings us into into God's presence. There are plenty of people, even in this room, who come from a a background or a heritage where we, um, uh, we go to a priest And that priest is different from us, even if we're trusting in Jesus. The priest is different. They're up here, or so we think, and we're down here, and we go to them because they will access God on our behalf. But God says, I'm going to pour out My Spirit on all flesh, not just certain classes of believer. And Paul applies that to our access to the Father. So we can go to Him directly in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit poured out on us. Now this, this is neatly summed up in, a, uh, in, in that phrase that 
hundreds of years old. It is a concept, however, it's old as the New Testament, the priesthood of believers. In the Old Testament, you see, the priests were considered closest to God. The people to whom you went, and they went to God in prayer and sacrifice on your behalf. Our access to God is not simply a matter made possible by the Holy Spirit's outpouring, but it is actual. I hope you see the difference. It's not just possible access to God's presence, but actual access to God's presence now. God is with us. And so we are with God. Nor is this initiated by us. As though we have access to God because of anything in and of ourselves. No, the only reason we can be with God is because God is with us. Our access to God comes from His abiding presence with us. Jesus Himself said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. The prophet said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. That's what Jesus is talking about when He says, I'll leave a helper. That's what Paul is talking about when he says we have access to God in one Spirit. And it is indeed for us all. Sometimes we must, we must remember that. We must proclaim that. It's the most powerful corrective to the divisions and barriers that our world creates between people. We saw it on Thursday at, at prayer meeting, but for those who weren't there, the early church African theologian Augustine saw the church as a fulfillment of Psalm 45's princess in a multicolored cloak interwoven with gold. The unifying gold, he, he, uh, was when he saw that, he was reminded of the wisdom of God. And when he saw the multicolored cloak, he was reminded of the multi-ethnic people of God united in and by the wisdom of God. The golden thread pulls all of the colors together, he said. And really, this is a, a constant emphasis of Scripture, both Old Testament prophecy and New Testament apostolic teaching, that the Spirit of God is not confined by national borders, linguistic barriers, cultural customs, or social constructs, but blows where He wishes. And one day, Joel says, God is going to pour out His Holy Spirit on all flesh. Not just momentarily, but residually. He is going to move in and make His home, His temple in a people He has bought for Himself and brought to Himself from all around the world. We must not forget that. God pours out His Spirit so we all have access to God. But not only that, we also see that God pours out His Spirit so we all have access to God's Word. And this communicates something of the prophethood of the believer. Read it there. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Now, some of you might be wondering, where's he going with this? It's about to... About, about to get a bit weird. This is, you know, maybe 
make it or break it sort of thing. I'm not sure where's he stand on these issues. Well, let's, uh, let's just stick to God's Word, the Scriptures, and not a whole realm of malpractice. Prophecy in Scripture has a broader meaning than is often realized. To start with, the word does not refer simply to predictions. That's what a lot of people think prophecy is all about, isn't it? You know, um, it's like prophets are uh, those sort of fortune readers that you get little things in certain newspapers from, you know. I don't read those newspapers, but you know, you know, you know what I'm, I'm talking about. Oh, this week, the stars are telling me that you're going to meet someone tall, dark, and handsome. <laughs> it doesn't say what's going to happen necessarily. You're just going to meet them, so it's pretty general. Um, but you're going to meet someone tall, dark, and handsome. Or this week holds good things for you. Oh. Thanks for that. Feeling really, really excited. Very detailed. Um, could be said about many weeks. You know, those little things. Sometimes people view biblical prophecy that way. They treat it that way. As, as though it's someone's going to walk up to me and going to tell me my future. They're going to tell me where to go, what to do, how to do it, why to do it, and all of that stuff because they've seen it played out very clearly. I think some people want that because they feel they're lacking direction. They, they feel that they are, are, are um, in a situation where they need someone to tell them what to do. They want that, and so they seek that. And there are predators, spiritual abusers, who prey on that kind of thing. Watch out for them. They're all over this place. Up and down the high road and on the back streets are plenty of churches. If you want a prophet self-styled, you can go and hear their prophecy. But if you test it with Scripture, it is foreign to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be very clear on that. When it comes to um, uh, prophecy biblically, though, um, uh, it, it's not just predictions. There is, even in the Bible, the predictive element, albeit not the form that you see often practiced. Um, nor does prophecy necessarily uh, speak really to what, what people know just around the corner. The office of prophet is not in view when um, Joel is talking about sons and daughters prophesying. This is not an office. He's not saying your sons and daughters will all be prophets. He says your sons and daughters will all prophesy. There is a difference. Um, uh, the, the prophecies that the people God saves are to be full of are, are not merely foretellers, though doubtless the discerning believer may be granted keen insight into future activity and consequences. Rather, these prophets or prophesiers are foretellers. They are proclaimers. They are speaking, sharing, proclaiming, and declaring the glory, greatness, and grace of God as they have believed, known, and felt it by the Holy Spirit so that people will know that as Joel's name means, Yahweh is God. That is what they will be prophesying. In fact, truth be told, that is what prophecy always is in Scripture. And so, when you are communicating the Word of God to someone, 
you are, in the original sense of the word, prophesying. This wasn't that controversial until people began to play around with the word and the concept and started messing about. You even have um, uh, in um, uh, the Puritans, uh, uh, among the Puritans, um, their preaching was called prophesying. Evangelizing was called prophesying. One of the Puritan preachers was a man by the name of William Perkins. He wrote a whole book on the art of prophesying. I don't know about you, but when I hear something called the art of prophesying, I picture a very glossy book with a man in a really fat collar and shock cuffs really out and you know, flexing <laughs> hands. The art of prophesying. Learn the secret. Um, but that's not, that's, that's, not, that's not prophecy in a biblical sense. It's, it, this is not something that is taught or learned um, uh, in, in quite the same way as um, uh, you know, this, this sort of um, various purveyors of prophecy out there. Some random can't lay hands on you and convey to you the gift of prophecy. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God, equipping them to proclaim the Word of God and to apply the Word of God. So that people may know that Yahweh is God. As they know that Yahweh is God, they are convicted of sin. They are torn down from pride. They are consoled in grief. They are built up and they are encouraged onward in the new and better life of the Holy Spirit. They will be possessed with a clearer vision of God. Saturated with God's Word. And so filled with God's praises. Clarity in the truth. Perception and discernment of what is false. Constructive instruction and where necessary, rebuke and correction. And always encouragement. For if the Holy Spirit is nothing else, He is the Greek word paraclete. The wise, comforting, counseling, encourager. Jesus said, again in John 14, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus teaches us, the Holy Spirit teaches us, and as we are taught and as we remember, we are renewed in our mind and we are equipped to speak the truth to those around us in a Holy Spirit-saturated demeanor of love and a demonstration of grace. The Holy Spirit does not just apply His Word to our audible life, however. What we say, prophecy, but to the inner life, what we think. Yes, even what we dream and what we envision. It has been observed even at a scientific level that what a person dreams about is a sign of what his mind is saturated with. Indeed, even the Scriptures say in the book of Ecclesiastes that a dream comes with much business. Your run-of-the-mill dream often takes your anxieties, fears, lusts, cravings, and so forth, and distorts them into bizarre but often realistic stories that for... Some, they, they, they can be indicative of um, various things about the past day. For others, they may 
feel like they bring omens of the day to come. Some people ignore dreams. For others, they become a source of further mental fear or moral failure. Dreams are an unreliable guide. have to make that clear. Those who are led by their dreams are consistently warned not to be led by their dreams in Scripture. They are not in themselves to be trusted or followed. Jude wrote of people relying on their dreams who defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. God warned the people of Israel through Moses that if a prophet arose from among them who dreamed dreams and said, let's go after other gods, he should be rejected. So not all dreams are good. And not all dreams, even those shared by professing believers, should be accepted or treated seriously. It doesn't always mean something. Okay? There's not always an interpretation. Unless it's exposing something that you know, is going on in your life in the day ahead that maybe you need to pray about. Oftentimes when someone asks me what to do, I've had this dream, I tell them, pray. You wake up in the night and someone in your dreams died. Someone's sick. Something. Pray. Just pray about it. And leave it with God and don't live under that cloud. Um, when when uh, someone says, oh, I had a dream and in the dream I was instructed to do this or that, weigh it with Scripture. What is it telling you to do? Because some, there are people who say, oh, I, I had a dream and in that dream I divorced my wife and I, I, I just believe that maybe... This is a message from the Lord that, um, you know, she's not for me. The, the, the Lord who said he hates that. So I'm pretty sure that didn't come from who, I mean, who is your Lord? Right? So not all dreams are good. Not all are meant to be treated seriously. Nevertheless, here God says they'll dream dreams and they'll see visions. A wholesale discarding of dreams, I believe, owes more to the naturalism of enlightenment philosophy than the Scriptures. And less important, but still significantly, it discards teaching and experiences of Christian men throughout history. You don't believe me? I'm not talking about the people on God TV. Take the reformer John Calvin, for example who wrote, as there are many natural causes for dreams, it would be quite out of character to be seeking for divine agency or fixed reason in them all. And yet, on the other hand, it is sufficiently evident that some dreams are under divine regulation. Or Charles Spurgeon, who said more strongly, Certainly, God doth warn us in dreams and visions even now. I am sure He does. There is not a man but can mention one or more instances of a warning or a benefit he has received in a dream. Your dreams aren't Scripture, though. Your dreams might point you to Scripture. They might remind you of Scripture they might drive you to live according to Scripture. Let's make sure we have it all balanced out. 
These dreams of which Joel speaks are certainly not worthless dreams, nor are they wayward dreams. These are dreams that are shaped by saturation in the poured out Holy Spirit of God. They are dreams of insight. They are visions of intuition. They are pictorial warnings that come to us in night or while our mind phases out commuting to the work in the day. These type things. Uh, They are dreams that point us to God, point us to His Word, Point us to His promises in some way or the other. These dreams prepare people to receive the Gospel if they have not yet already. Something that we hear coming often out of um, relatively unreached parts of the world. They are dreams that trouble us and wake us and cause us to call out to God in the night. They are dreams like the the one that I had uh, some years ago that I've never forgotten that so lifted my heart where I was in this bright and shining place and I saw people I've not seen since childhood, some of whom I will never see in this life again because they've died and are now with the Lord. And we burst into song singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I woke up quite sure that I was singing in my sleep. That's, that's not a rubbish dream. That's not something that means nothing. That's something that's under the sovereignty of God, knowing exactly what I needed, when I needed it, where I needed it, and how I needed it. These dreams are not new revelations of God, for the Scriptures are complete and sufficient. But they are fresh realizations of God. That similarly to sermons, we believe in sufficiency, but we still preach sermons. Similarly to sermons, they in some way explain, illustrate, and apply some aspect of God's Word to us. This is for all of us. Even as we are priests, so we are prophets. Make sure that your your prophethood is based on your union with Jesus Christ and filling with the Holy Spirit. Not some other thing. There are some people moving out on the Christian streets like they're Jonah instead of Jesus. We need to be careful about that. Thirdly, God pours out His Spirit so we all have a place in God's kingdom. This tells us something about the kingship of believers. Notice there is this, there's this picture of, of unity and yes, even equality among the family of God in this passage. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The three categories with whom we see uh, the uh, people filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament were prophets, priests, and kings. And, um, and, and now, by access to God, all of us with the Holy Spirit, we are all brought up. We are all elevated. We are all raised. He says, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out My Spirit. Speaking of those whom the Lord calls, who who themselves call upon His name, Joel emphasizes that the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, and he really means it. The context makes abundantly clear that Joel does not mean every single individual. We have to be careful that we, we, we understand exactly what God is saying through His prophet. Not every single individual, but rather, as we see later, those who are called 
by God and those who call on God. If you're skeptical, just cast your eyes a few verses down. Verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And so today we might say the Lord is calling you to Himself. The Lord is calling you to trust in Him. The Lord is calling you to know the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Even as the Lord is calling upon you, you must call upon Him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as we are saved, we know His Spirit at work in us. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all who call upon the name of the Lord. Indeed, all who are called by the Lord to Him. We must focus on who this is about, not who it is not about. So, to clarify by what he means by all flesh, the prophet says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And shortly thereafter, he speaks of male and female servants. So, the Spirit is poured out, we've already established, on all flesh, irrespective of ethnicity, of nationality, The Spirit is poured out irrespective of sex. Also, whether in that culture at that time, whether they would normally receive the inheritance, sons and not daughters. But he says, male and female will receive the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, he says of old men, old men will dream dreams and young men will will see visions. Really, the emphasis here is not on the dreams and visions as some might have it, although those are important, which we just established, but rather on who is dreaming and who is envisioning. Old men and young men. Old and young. The Spirit is therefore not only poured out irrespective of sex, it is poured out irrespective of stage. The text goes on to say that the Spirit will be poured out on male and female servants. And this on the surface most definitely communicates something of class. But also as foreigners were often brought into wealthy Jewish households as servants, could even be a further reference to Gentiles as joint recipients of the Holy Spirit. We see then that the Holy Spirit is given without regard to status. Sex, stage, socioeconomic and ethnic status. None of these things are factors in who receives the Holy Spirit. And therefore, none of these things are factors in who is anointed by God and brought into His kingdom. In Christ the King, by the anointing of the Spirit, we are as believers all kings. And we shall reign with Him. But now we are, we are sent out by Christ to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given with power from on high to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. The question, what do, what do believers, specific, sorry, what do people, specifically unbelievers, see and hear of you? 
the church when you go out. And believers, what do you see and hear from each other? Are you boldly approaching God in prayer, in praise, and in worship? Are you prophetically speaking the great things of God in the gospel throughout the world, in your life, into other people's lives? Are you busybodies talking about people? Or are you busy applying God's word to people? Are you living as exiles? whose kingdom is not of this world? Or or do you really have far too much invested in this life? Far too much treasure on earth? Are you walking in the Spirit or in the flesh? In the New Testament we read, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Are you silly-minded and drunk? Or are you filled with the Holy Spirit? The Word of the Lord says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit. We can say with certainty that these verses relate to the church. And so to us, if we trust and follow Jesus. You see, if you hadn't clocked it, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, that occasioned Joel's message is known more commonly to us by another name, by its Greek name, Pentecost. Today is Pentecost. And on the most famous day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover and Jesus' Last Supper, Peter stood up. And how did he begin his sermon? This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quoted Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The bottom line of his sermon was, we are not drunk, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and here is how. The how, according to Peter, is none other than Jesus Christ. Specifically, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and His exaltation, which they had just witnessed something of as He ascended into heaven with the command to wait for power themselves from on high. God has raised this Jesus, and He has raised us with Him. He said this at the conclusion of His sermon, God has raised this Jesus. We are all are witnesses of this. Therefore, since He has been exalted at the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The response to this message? Repent, believe in Jesus, and be baptized. And you're like, I'm already trusting in Christ. You've shown with 
personal repentance and baptism as a believer, that you're already trusting in Christ, then you should have confidence in the abiding presence of Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit is upon you. You are anointed. You are a prophet, a priest, and a king by union with Jesus. He's equipping you. But for what? You don't have to wait for power on high. You have it. He's equipping you for faithful worship and witness. So as you go, be a witness to Jesus Christ. Amen.